Hello and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, the podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode recorded on Sunday, July 18th, 2021. Good evening to you out there. I'm Greg from Philly, your host for today's podcast. And today we're talking with Dan Schaefer, our podcast producer, just kind of a informal, casual conversation on a couple of topics that have been coming up in the news lately that uh, I don't know that we thought would be a little bit interesting to explore. First and off, hello, Greg. I'm here. Hey, Dan. <laughs> I was going to say, first off, Dan, say hi, and there he goes. <laughs> <laughs> I read your mind. <laughs> so, what do we have? What do you want to talk about? Well, the ongoing crisis with COVID. And mm-hmm. um, the new anxiety over variants of the disease, including the Delta variant, it's been very palpable. I'm sure families and workplaces across the country have been having conversations about this. Yep. And uh, we're kind of seeing an, a renewed debate about masks, where depending on, on what camp you're in, um, and depending on the week as far as the CDC guidelines, camps uh, masks are either still needed or not needed because you're vaccinated, or not needed at all because you're not going to get vaccinated and you don't think the masks are some sort of uh, political conspiracy to control you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're seeing this dynamic play out all over the place. Um, there's been new guidance that folks should be wearing masks, even if they're vaccinated because of these variants. I know as recently as 4th of July weekend in the on the East Coast, where I spent my vacation, masks were very optional. It was a uh, mask if you're not vaccinated, but if you're not if you are vaccinated, you don't need a mask. Mm-hmm. But there was no one checking for vaccination. There was no requirement you show proof of it or even a question that they asked you about it. So Yeah, a lot of states have made it illegal to even ask about it, which is really bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. On the one hand, I, I get that people's health information is private. But on the other hand, it's if you're going to have these distinctions between rights, responsibilities, and expectations for people that are vaccinated versus not vaccinated, you do kind of need to know. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's a public interest thing too, right? I want to know if the guy next to me has been vaccinated or not. And really how much, you know, I mean, I'm going to play the real skeptical person here. How much do you really reveal when you say I've been vaccinated? Does that mean like you're revealing all your medical history or something like that? Or is that some sort of slippery slope? that leads into the fact that maybe you've got diabetes or something like that. I mean, it, it, to me, it's just a simple yes, no question. Right. But yeah, the Missouri legislature here, I'm now living in Missouri. Um, they've actually made it illegal to even ask whether or not you have masks. So, um, when they remove the mask mandate, as an example here in St. Louis, when they remove the mask mandate, my wife and I went to the gym as we normally do. We always wore a mask, which is a whole different experience when you're having a cardio workout. Um, it's like, you know, working out on top of Pike's Peak or something, just gasping for air the whole time. But um, so we were excited to remove our masks. So we walk in, you know, right after the mask mandate was over, we were excited to remove our masks. We walk in and we said, uh, um, is the policy now nobody has to wear masks? Uh, and the young lady behind the desk says, yes, that's uh, the policy. It's optional at this point. And I says, well, we've been vaccinated uh, more than two weeks ago. We completed our vaccination cycle. She says, you know, I'm not supposed to ask that, but it's nice to know if you volunteer it. <laughs> so uh, it, it, I don't know, it, to me, it, it seems very counterproductive 
uh, to make these types of laws, and I don't know why one would want to make those laws. Um, do you have any speculation on that at all? Greg is thinking. Hello? Hello, hello? Greg, I can't hear you. I must have just, like, knocked you out with my... Uh... Well, here he comes uh, back. So my microphone just decided to switch on Zoom. To oh, different, I thought of I thought it was because I was saying something really, really profound, and you were just like falling off your chair or something and scrambling back. No, to, uh, I actually get back think to the the, uh, the reasoning around that is is pretty straightforward. It's it's red meat for the base. Mm -hmm. There is a significant voting block within the Republican Party that simultaneously views COVID as either not real or not that bad and views vaccines and masks as pointless or dangerous. Mm -hmm. So laws that, uh, I would say laws that uh, restrict or otherwise trivialize or justify their point of view that they shouldn't have to wear these masks and, and everyone else should just deal with it that's stuff that they like. They get excited about that, or at least the Republican uh, political figures believe they'll get excited about that and that they'll reward them later in the polls. Yeah, that's, um, boy, oh boy, that's really cynical. I mean, I'm not cynical on your part, but I mean, it's a cynical on, on politicians' oh, part yes. because I think that you it's actually speak the truth there. Yeah, yeah. It's very cynical, but I mean, we're seeing that pattern play out repeatedly and some Republicans aren't even... Uh, coy about it they're 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 pretty direct about mm -hmm. why they're doing what they're doing there and it's i mean it's cynical of them to do it but there are a group that will vote for them because of it yeah so yeah as a as a politician it, it somewhat tracks that behavior even though you know in my opinion it seems irresponsible from a public policy perspective well it, it's also i think it's not going to be long. Maybe I might be overestimating this, but I, I can't imagine it taking very long before that catches up with them. Because, um, uh, I, again, I'm in Missouri. I'm on the other side of the state from, from a city called Springfield, Missouri. But Springfield has been in the national news lately because that seems to be the um, the hot spot for the Delta variant that's uh, that's plaguing the country at this point. And if you look at the counties in the Springfield area, you have like a 30% um, vaccination rate which is completely inadequate, especially for something like Delta, which seems to have a very high transmission rate. And you're getting these stories now of people that um, uh, are, are dying or getting very close to death or watching their loved ones die. And they're saying things like, gee, I wish I would have gotten that vaccine. You know, and, and uh, in fact, there's a woman down in Arkansas. She made uh, national news yesterday, uh, not too far from Springfield there. And, um, she, her 14-year-old daughter, she encouraged her 14-year-old daughter to not get the vaccine. And the last I heard yesterday, um, her daughter was in ICU, completely unconscious, on a ventilator, and, and the mother's standing there crying and saying, you know, I wish I, wish I would have gotten her vaccinated. And so it, these types of stories are starting to emerge right now. And I can, I can begin to believe that it's going to turn at some point and somebody's going to say, you know, you guys have been giving us bad advice. We should have been 
um, we should have been taking this more seriously all along. We should have been masking up sooner. We should have been, uh, we, we should not have been misled by uh, politicians themselves or news organizations or, you know, social media or whatever. Um, of course, social media, that's a whole different story. Facebook has a, a response to their accusation from Joe Biden on that. But uh, the, the bottom line is, I, I just can't imagine that this, is, this isn't at some point going to turn on the Republicans. and They're going to be seen for uh, the cynical approach that they've taken. I would have agreed with you, but and you might still be right, but I think we're now, what, over 600,000 dead, mm-hmm. at least yeah. in this country alone. And that point hasn't happened yet. So yeah, I'm sort of left with, well, what, what might it take? What uh, is there a threshold it would cross? Is there information that could come out that would change people's minds? Or are they very committed to this point of view so much so that you know, they would rather be, they would rather stick with it in the face of any evidence rather than say that they had been wrong or misled. There's yeah. an element of that, right? Where you don't want to feel, you don't want to feel or admit to being foolish or, uh, you know, if someone misled you, there's like a, yeah, yeah, pride, a, a, a back side of that, that you were, you were fooled, you know, you're, yeah, you were taken advantage of and that's somehow your fault. Yeah, yeah. Well, as it was that expression says it's easy to fool a fool, but it's really hard to convince a fool that he's been fooled or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, something like that. I forgot who somebody said that some some time ago. I've forgotten who it was that said that at this point. But but that's got to be at play at least a little bit. I mean, I, yeah. I suspect just what's happening in your individual families. You know, so many people have gotten this virus or know someone that has. Mm-hmm. I would imagine it's very difficult to still maintain that position, but many people do. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a conversation I had with this guy um, several years back. I was working, um, I was doing some work for the Democratic Party, knocking on doors. I did like 500 doors back in 2018. Since grew disillusioned with the with the Democratic Party, but um, not completely disillusioned. But just, anyways, that's a long story. Anyways, I ran into this guy and. Um, he was a he was a you know Harley motorcycle bad dude been in prison. Um, he's not supposed to have a gun, but he showed me his gun anyways. You know he's trying to impress me and stuff. But I ended up chatting with him, and, and I yeah I says you know my big thing is healthcare. I says I this is why I'm in the game. I says because you know I've had some issues myself or in my family that has that has motivated me in that direction. And uh, he says, I don't care about healthcare. I says, well, what happens if you fall off your bike, right? I mean, this happens a lot, right? You've seen it happen. He says, yeah. I said, well, what happens if you fall off your bike? I mean, is this supposed to kick your carcass to the side of the road and keep going? He says, yeah, I don't care. I said, okay, now how about your son? And all of a sudden his eyes get wide. I said, how about your, mm-hmm. how about your wife? And, his, and, he, and, he, and I can see the wheels in his head starting to turn like, yeah, I mean, I could take that for myself. But, you know, I wouldn't wish that upon my children or my wife or anything, you know. So, and I think that's where we are with COVID. It's like, you know, people want to take their own chances. That's fine. But, you know, you come, you, you go out and, and, and do whatever you want. Don't wear your mask. It's fine if it's just you, you know, but you come home, you give it to your children or you give it to your, yeah. to your, to your, to your spouse or to your parents, your grandparents or something. Then it starts to open up a whole different line of thought, you know, and people start thinking, well, maybe I should have been more responsible over this thing. You know, and, and I think you do swallow your pride in those situations because, you know, I know from personal experience when your child is in 
medical need or whatever, you will do anything to save that child. And um, I unfortunately have been in that position a couple of times and um, I'll drop my pride. You know, I, you, know you, 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 would, you would drop anything, you drop your whole life if you have to, to save your children. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, anyways, I, I think that, uh, sorry to kind of digress on that a little bit, but um, I, I, you might be right too. Maybe the cynicism lasts forever and people will never mask up. People will always deny um, COVID. They will always um, always look down on people who wear a mask and they'll be proud about the fact they're not wearing a mask. But the reality is they're hurting their loved ones too. And that's uh, maybe they never realized that. I don't know. Well, I'd like to believe that there is a, a point at which that happens and then things can start to turn the corner here. Yeah. And you did mention that uh, Joe Biden had an interaction with Facebook. I imagine most of our audience has at least heard about it, but I know that you want to go into it a little bit. Yeah, he. I I don't have the exact quote in front of me now. I wish I did. I had it at one point, and then I started shuffling my paperwork around, and I totally lost it. But uh, basically, I believe it was they're killing people. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he he said it outright. He said they're killing people. And, um, and that was also backed up by the Surgeon General, uh, Dr. Is that Vivek or Vivek Murthy? I, don't, I never got his name right. But he, he warned um, last Thursday that uh, health misinformation is a serious threat to public health. And so Facebook took exception to this, obviously, because, you know, they're, they're probably the number one social media platform out there. And uh, their VP of integrity, a uh, person by the name of Guy Rosen, wrote up a uh, blog post uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, and released it. And, uh, you know, he says, basically, you know, the data shows that 85% of Facebook users in the U.S. have been or want to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Um, he said President Biden's goal was for 70% of Americans to be vaccinated by July 4th. Facebook is not the reason this goal was missed, you know. And he puts up a graphic here that uh, that has this line sloping upward to the right, kind of leveling off on the right side, but it starts off... Uh, in December of last year, where the uh, vaccine acceptance was slightly below 70%, and now it's leveled off at 85%. And uh, I guess the the point he's trying to make, and and I think it was a sincere point too. There's so many reasons why I don't like Facebook, but I gotta be honest, I, I think they are making a pretty good effort at trying to control the the messages that go out there. And um, you know, they are patrolling and they are uh, cooperating to some degree. They're not cooperating completely. They're not giving a lot of information to the government to help the government track um, the acceptance rates. But um, they are taking a, a pretty good uh, approach to uh, trying to at least police their own social media platform. Um, so I, I guess I just want to make that point there that, um, you know, Joe Biden thinks it's social media. I think it's more than just social media. I think the traditional media has, uh, to some degree, helped to misinform people. And, you know, you get a clown saying that uh, something like, you know, the, the COVID vaccine makes you magnetic. And every media organization across the U.S., uh, liberal, conservative, whatever, they're going to put that on their on their news, right? And so that just gives more uh, publicity for these for these really ridiculous ideas that that give people a reason to not take the vaccine. So, anyways, that's uh, that's kind of the meandering point I wanted to make there. No, I think you're absolutely right. The 
the presence of that misinformation at the mainstream media level, uh, the reinforcement that you know social media posts and these uh, conspiracies that you might see there are legitimate and should be paid attention to. Uh, that's that's not coming from Facebook. That's it's coming from your foxes. Yeah. You know, that's coming from from some of your more established newspapers and digital newspapers. Yeah. And I mean, people are going to say whatever they're going to say. People take them seriously because they hear politicians and news anchors and people that look very official. Yeah. yeah. Sort of responding to it and either agreeing with it or telling them it's worth consideration. And so that kind of perpetuates not only that specific piece of misinformation, but also this mindset that that kind of misinformation is legitimate. If you see more of it, you should take it seriously. Well, it's the uh, the expression, if you repeat something enough, people start to believe it. And even if you whisper it, people will start to believe it. And also couple that with the fact that lies tend to travel at the speed of light, whereas truth travels at the speed of sound. And so... You know, once the uh, once the, the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's really hard to put it back in. And you know, the truth tellers try to put the toothpaste back in, but that's a uh, by the time it gets out there, it's too late already. In many cases, so you had a before we talked it, you had a very interesting analogy about the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> well, I was I was just talking with Dan, and you know, uh, I'm a big apocalypse movie fan love the zombie genre in general and you hear a lot of criticisms of like oh the zombie apocalypse would be so unrealistic like there's no way the virus could get so widespread that everything would like fall apart overnight like you would see in the last of us or something like that and i'm sitting over here (laughs) watching people uh deny covid uh, (laughs) maybe not deny it but refuse to take the vaccine uh, simultaneously praise Trump's handling of the virus, but also that the virus isn't real. It's like, oh, isn't that bizarre? I, I'm pretty yeah. sure about like a third of the country, 25% to a third of the country would just go, there is no zombie apocalypse happening. Mm-hmm. If there is, it isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Refuse to, uh, to like get treatment if they get bitten. Say, oh, I don't need, I don't need go to the hospital for a zombie bite i'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) i could absolutely now see it happening it no longer seems uh like a conceit of the genre yeah yeah as much as perhaps a slight exaggeration of how things would actually play out turns out to not be as much of an exaggeration as you thought though huh (laughs) right (laughs) oh surely the government would like get everything in gear and like quarantine and all that stuff no there would be like 50 votes, 52 votes for it in the Senate, but it wouldn't be enough to pass anything. Oh, <laughs> and, you know, you're kind of flipping the coin as to whether or not the president will take it seriously or not. Oh, it's my like, gosh. Well, I don't know. doesn't seem as far-fetched. The walking dead for real, huh? Hey, man, I mean, obviously the, the concept of, of a zombie virus itself is still far-fetched, but, like, the government and social response to it, I think, is has been more on the nose than people would have liked to admit. Those Hollywood writers actually got got it pretty uh, accurately this time, perhaps without even knowing it. But they, <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. 
That's actually one of my favorite shows, The Walking Dead. I, I'm sure you watched that whole series, but I, I watched it up to like the third season and I just, um, I don't know, I just stopped watching it. They kept zooming in on the grotesqueness and I thought, okay, mm. I, I like the storyline, but you know, a little bit too well, much. There's a certain zombie fan that like loves the gore aspect yeah. of it. It's yeah. never into that part necessarily, but it doesn't dissuade me. Yeah. The show itself, well, I mean, it's good. I think it's coming up on its last season soon. Um, it's still being really... I thought it, I thought they were done with that. You're talking about the AMC uh, Walking Dead Yeah, there's series? one more to go. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Well, I yeah. guess I'm just going to have to like... I don't know. My wife didn't want to watch it either. She says, this is getting disgusting. So maybe I can just like, you know, watch it when she's not around, which is like never because <laughs> I work from home now and, she, and she's always home. So, but no, I really would like to watch the rest of it because it was, it had a very good uh, storyline behind it. And I, at first, when my, when my son told me about it, I was like, uh, nah, I don't want to watch any bunch of zombies, but he got me into it. And after I watched the first couple of episodes, I was hooked. And I thought, this is really cool stuff. It is really uh, more realistic than I thought it would be, except for the yeah the zombie part. It was probably not. I am that very realistic. excited for the Last of Us series that's coming out. Apparently, they have a budget of a million an episode. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Well, anyone else out there in podcast land is hyped for some of these <laughs> upcoming zombie stuff. Let us know. Apparently, we're really into it. <laughs> I so, had no idea about that about you, Dan. That's exciting. Well, I'm always up for a good story because you know, like Stephen King is one of my favorite writers, actually. Because mm. you know, and I haven't read all of his books, but uh, he is a master storyteller. I, I just love the way he writes. He pays attention to the details, but he moves the story along. He doesn't dwell on it. You know, he just moves the story along pretty quickly. And he's always presenting ordinary people with extraordinary situations. And that's kind of like COVID in a sense, right? <laughs> ordinary people with extraordinary situations. You'll find that a certain percentage of them will rise to it, and a certain percentage of them will just, um, you know, maybe try to live in denial uh, or maybe fight it, you know. And uh, the problem with the virus, it doesn't care. <laughs> doesn't care who you yeah, are. I mean, the ultimate yeah. lockdown scenario, the mist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the mist. Yeah. Oh, boy. That brings back memories. <laughs> Yeah, Anyways, I, I used to have that on uh, on cassette tape when I was a little kid. It was like the only audiobook that my family had. Oh, really? I just listened to it in the car and stuff. Oh, man. Oh, wow. So now, that, that's the one where the, that, that mysterious fog comes into the town there where all those mm -hmm. monsters are living in the fog. Yeah, I read that book, and then um, I, think it was, I think it was a novella. I'm, I'm not sure. But anyways, um, then I, they did a film of it. You know, I was... Uh, Hollywood film on it, and it was just as creepy as the book. It was oh yeah, excellent. I thought just. But excellent. you had the the same thing. You had the people that deny it. Yeah, and then yeah. people that exploit it for power. Yeah, that's amazing. It's interesting human dynamic. And in the end, the National Guard rescues the day. Right, they come in at the very end. Or in, uh, in the movie, yes. In the book, no. That's in right. The book, yeah, the, the ending book is, is yeah. much more ambiguous. They just kind of drive off into the fog. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. they're like chasing a radio signal if I'm remembering right, but it's somewhat ambiguous as to whether or not they're actually going to find mm -hmm. what they're looking for. That's true. I forgot about that. Yeah. Huh. Well, the movie itself has a yeah. pretty tragic ending too, but uh, we won't talk about uh, that. We'll, yeah. I don't want to do any spoiler alerts here. 
So you mentioned something interesting, though. You just happened to trip up on it, which made me think of something else, which was, you know, the Senate's going to be, you know, deadlocked. They're not going to ever get past, you know, the, the, the threshold they need to do any action. Filibuster. Let's talk about that. What's what's going on with filibusters these days? Well, the filibuster has been in the news a lot because Democrats are attempting to put some sort of voter reforms and protections bill through, but they are meeting a lot of resistance from the Republicans and to an extent, one or two members of their own party. Mm -hmm. And they're, I mean, I think the chances of that reaching 60 votes were pretty remote to begin with. I think I made a similar comment a few episodes ago. And uh, I think our guest was like, well, actually, there's a, a great voting rights bill coming through the Senate. Mm-hmm. I knew that it was never going to see the light of day in the Senate. Yeah, uh, yeah. Any substantial piece of legislation is pretty much DOA right now because the opposition parties are very, very resistant to reach across the aisle and yeah. make some sort of reasonable compromise to allow a bill to go through. And so that's where we're at. And there's been a lot of talk after Biden got elected about Democrats needing to uh, remove the filibuster from the Senate rules, which would be somewhat of a nuclear option. But I think that it's technically within their power to do it. Mm -hmm. The ultimate question is, should they? Because, of course, if a Republican Congress comes in and there's no filibuster, then we get the Democrats would have the republican agenda without any ability to slow it down or stop it right which is the the rub of the filibuster it it prevents a lot of business in the senate but on the other hand it is a very valuable tool to protect a sizable minority from the tyranny of the majority yeah and so that's kind of where we're at with it and there's Talk about can we save it? Should we save it? If so, how? Um, what is the role of the filibuster in, in sort of like the meta of American democracy? Is it to promote bipartisanship? Is it to ensure a certain amount of government inaction? There are certainly a lot of Americans who think that's a good thing. Um, and I think we're starting to have a national conversation about it. Yeah, well, one thing I would observe is that with, let's say we had more than two parties that were prominent, right? In my dream of dreams, like the Alliance Party becomes a significant party and, and become, yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and so let's say we grab like maybe three senators, right? And so you got like, you know, not enough senators on uh, within either one of the Democratic or, De- or Republican parties to actually get past the 50, and because, you know, you got this pesky little alliance party sitting in the middle with just their three senators, right? Um, that kind of gets to the point of, I would think, mitigating a lot of this debate over the filibuster, right? Because nobody's going to get to that threshold anyway. So let's all roll up our sleeves and start working this thing out, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, what do you think about that? I think that's... That's partly true. I mean, it, it kind of assumes that the other two parties would have their even split as well. That mm-hmm. might not always be the case. Yeah, yeah. But let's say it's 33 and a third. Let's say you have three parties, each one has 33 and a third, or maybe four parties, and each one has 25% plus or minus. I mean, you're yeah, never, never going to get to that. That would basically remove the need for the filibuster. Yeah. We're not, we're not there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably not going to get there. I mean, it's 
I would love it if we can get the Alliance Party to have one senator. Mm-hmm. We'll see where that goes. But it's it's going to be a tough road before we get to that kind of multi-party plurality in the American system unless we have significant reforms yeah. to how we run elections. And that is changing in some states, but certainly not at the national level. I don't think there's any any expectation that's going to be happening soon. Mm-hmm. I think we're much more likely to see something done on the filibuster before we see more re- party representation in Congress. Well, I had um, actually, I get on Twitter uh, once in a while, actually every day, uh, just, you know, hanging out there. I, I get, I get, uh, I follow people who are on both sides of the political spectrum here. And one of the people I follow is Chuck Schumer. And he came up with a, uh, with a saying, or he came up with an expression the other day that says, there is no alternative. We must get rid of the filibuster. And I came back and said, wait a minute, there is an alternative. If you have multiple parties, the filibuster would be like, like not, not necessary. I got a, a lot of likes on that one because I think you know, a light bulb went off in people's heads like, yeah, wait a minute. You know, we're stuck in this duopoly thing. If we, you know, filibuster is one of those issues that come up because we're stuck in this duopoly and we're stuck to the point where even Chuck Schumer would say, there's no other alternative. Say, yeah, there is an alternative. You know, you guys put yourself in this jam by creating this duopoly. So, you know, you yeah. kind of boxed yourself in with this thing. There's, there's plenty of alternatives. Yeah. And, and the issue, I mean, I guess the issue is with the filibuster itself, but it's a tool and mm-hmm. how it's used is really the problem. You can look at any, any chart that tracks it. The number of filibustered pieces of legislation has spiked enormously in the past 8 to 12 years. Hmm. It's not even remotely close. Historically, it just wasn't used the way it is now, which is to like totally shut down the opposite party's agenda on the uh, political calculus that if you deny them any wins, that it's more beneficial for your party in the next election than if you were somehow involved in passing good legislation. Just where we're at right now. That's why it's as effective as it is. Yeah. Actually, not as effective as as utilized as it is because the opposition party doesn't want these agenda items to go through, and they believe it's better for them electorally if that happens. Hmm. That's difficult to argue with as long as it's true, as long as voters continue not to punish parties for abusing the filibuster. They'll keep on doing it. Why not? Yeah. Well, the Texas legislature, um, the Democrats left the state. That's essentially kind of a another option, I guess. You just you leave. Um, I don't know if that's even an option in the U.S. Senate, uh, but um, in the Texas legislature, that seems to work at least. They're going all going to get arrested when they return, but um, that's a whole different story. But uh, yeah, that's well, somewhat related story. I think they left yeah. the state over a voting rights bill. Yeah, yeah. Except in that case, it was a voting restriction bill. Yeah. That the Texas Republicans were trying to pass, and the Democrats are like, "Nope," and they hopped a plane. Yeah, that's. Um, but it's a really a sign of the breakdown of politics in general. Then I guess, isn't it? No. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's it's the breakdown of uh, cooperative politics, even in 
previous years where the you know Democrats and Republicans have always been at each other's throats, but it seemed like there was more of an interest in solving or at least attempting to solve the issues of the day uh, with the two parties, regardless of who was in power, at least discussing with each other and voting on some proposals. Maybe they would include some Republican proposals. Maybe they'd include some Democrat amendments. Right. You know, things like that. And, and there would be votes and people would, you know, they'd vote if they wanted to support it or not. And now it seems much more deadlocked, a lot more party discipline, at least, I mean, uh, maybe I'm wrong on the party discipline front. Maybe it was always that way, but it certainly seems like they vote more as a block now yeah. than they than they may have in the past. Well, the party whips are given all kinds of power these days, and um, mm. that that's one thing I like about the Alliance Party, which caught my attention almost immediately, was um, at least they don't plan on having any party whips at this point, right? So it's it, to me, it's like my first reaction was, how can you survive? How can you actually, you know, have a, a consistent uh, policy if you don't have some sort of a whip out there to, you know, not literally, but figuratively in a ways whip people into shape and get them to toe the line and um the alliance party is like no you know we don't want to be issues based like that we want to be um you know more behavior based and principle based and therefore you know there's no need for a whip and so i think the party whips in the in, the, in both the republican and democratic party make sure that there's consistency in the party it's kind of hard to do with People like AOC, I think, but I think even she sometimes uh, has to toe the line. Um, but yeah, it's it's destructive. I think it, it, the horse trading stops, and and that's what legislatures mm -hmm. are supposed to do: the horse trading. Like they don't trade horses anymore, literally, do they? I, I might take place. Uh, maybe that maybe that's why things aren't working anymore. Did you bring you horses back? back. Yeah. <laughs> back to the roots of American democracy. <laughs> so let's get them some horses. Let's get a, some sort of sustainable horse economy going. Okay, so that would make, here it goes, that would make the world more stabilized. <laughs> oh, Dan. Legendary. Oh, yeah. uh, That's an old joke. It just came up, but uh, it's like, yeah, now I found an appropriate place for it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, I know we're getting toward the end of our time here, but... Um, the filibuster kind of ties into, I think, the Supreme Court in the sense that uh, when it comes time to selecting uh, federal judges for, for um, I think who was a Harry Reid at that point, pretty much got rid of the need to have 60 votes in the Senate for each of the appointments of judges uh, on the mm -hmm. federal court system. I hope I got that right. Uh, but he didn't touch the Supreme Court, yeah. so he kind of set it up. And then the Republicans are like, well, you already set it up for us, so we're just going to apply it to the Supreme Court as well. And boom, you know, now we only need 50 votes to get a Supreme Court justice seated. Or 51 votes, I guess. And I, I think the, uh, the consequence of that has been you know, dragging the Supreme Court down to Congress's level in terms of mm -hmm. people's perceptions of their legitimacy used to be the most respected branch of government. <laughs> now it's, yeah. it's polling is pretty close to the others. Yeah. Right. That's, I think that's very, very unfortunate. And I'm a big fan of the Supreme court. I think it plays a very vital role in our political system and it has been very 
disheartening to see the way it's been degraded over the course of the last four years. Well, what do you think about this concept of packing the courts? I know that was a big conversation taking place. Um, and I think Joe Biden himself tried to quiet that down because I don't think he wanted to build any expectations. But uh, that was last year before the before the election. But um, it's kind of been quieted down recently. But uh, what do you think about the fact that, uh, you know, Democrats could potentially pack the courts at this point and they got a majority, right? Uh, I, 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 I would hope that they choose not to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think packing the courts while it might benefit them politically and it might have the effect of undoing some of the damage of other Republican shenanigans around the court with refusing to even hear Barack Obama's nominee and then ramming through, uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett in the last year of the, the last years of the Trump presidency. That's uh that's like a doomsday solution in my mind because I think you are setting up the Supreme Court to be effectively irredeemable as far as Amer- legitimacy in the eyes of most Americans mm-hmm. pretty much for the rest of of this generation if not longer. But here's I think here, the better move mm-hmm. like an alternative I would suggest um mm-hmm. I do like that Supreme Court justices don't have to face political pressure once they get on the bench, but maybe we should talk about term limits instead of lifetime appointments. So there's a, each presidency has an expectation of being able to, uh, to have one or two justice picks. Yeah. Maybe that is the way to go. Yeah, that's, um, I was just going to mention that because the the problem with when the Constitution was first written was that the you know the life expectancy of people uh, was not that great. I mean, some people, I mean, John Adams, and I think John Adams lived to be a pretty old man, but that was more of an exception than the rule. Most people didn't live that long. So when you appoint someone to a Supreme Court justice position back then, uh, lifetime appointment meant, yeah, well, whatever life you have remaining, right, maybe five or ten years. Um, nowadays people are living a lot longer. And so when you appoint someone, particularly a younger person to the Supreme court, they're going to be there for a while. So that harkens back to an article written by David Litt for the Boston globe. And I'm reaching back on my memory for this. I apologize. I don't have it in front of me here. Um, but he had suggested exactly what you just said, that we, rotate people through the Supreme Court system. You, you, Once a federal judge is appointed, it is a lifetime appointment, but that doesn't mean they have to sit on the Supreme Court bench. So you have a system set up where each president gets a certain number of, of uh, Supreme Court justices um, during his or her term. And that seems more, more, makes more sensible to me, or makes more sensible, <laughs> makes more sense to, to me that because we have these extreme, um, our lifespan is much longer these days, that um, someone appointed today who's maybe 40 years old, that's pretty young, but maybe 40 years old, they're going to be there for another 40, 50 years. Um, the culture is going to change during those 40 or 50 years. And, you know, the, are they going to change with the culture? So just appoint them for maybe a 10-year term and you rotate them out of that position. They still maintain their federal judgeship title you can't take that away um i don't know what the official term for that is but you can rotate them through the supreme court on a schedule 
That keeps yeah, the Supreme Court fresh. And the term could even be much longer. I, I would mm-hmm. be open to like 15, 20-year terms, whatever. But the idea mm-hmm. being the rotation, I think, is the key part. That there is, it's less of a feeding frenzy when one of the spot opens up and political yeah. parties are encouraged to do whatever it takes to get their guy on. Mm-hmm. No, it's just an expectation every every president gets to pick one justice, Yeah. for instance. Yeah. Well, if you have uh, nine judges and they're on for 20-year terms, uh, you know, the math would be that, you know, X number of years per. And so each each presidential yeah, term I mean, would get... Yeah, I mean, that's just the terms for that, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know what the math would be off the top of my head. I'm sure someone out there will tell us. <laughs> every time I open up the microphone... I'm an engineer by trade, but every time I open up the microphone, my mind goes blank. So I'm not even going to try to work this out in my head at this point on the spot. But yeah, I I think that's a good concept there, and I would be very supportive of that idea. But actually, with David Litt, I think he actually advocated for uh, making thirteen justices. I think for fifteen year terms. Again, I'm reaching back on my memory in this one, but I think that was uh, his specific recommendation. But in a, in all, the concept I think is pretty good. And, yeah, I, uh, I would just wouldn't want to have like because if if. If the Democrats increase it to twelve, and the Republicans are increased to fifteen, and yeah, it just becomes a, a clown show. No, yeah. yeah, more so than it already is, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I know you got to get running today. Um, I've got to get running too, um, and I think we're getting up to pretty close to the end of our time, aren't we? Or do we have more time? Yeah, let's What's let's hit them with the outro. Well, before we do the outro, I want to mention one more thing. If you will allow me. Oh, by, by all means, Dan. There is a March for Medicare for All taking place next Saturday, July 24th, in a city near you. So um, I happen to get familiar with uh, one of the people involved in organizing this march. I'm very supportive of it. Unfortunately, they're not in St. Louis, Missouri. They are in Kansas City, Missouri, but I live in St. Louis, so that's going to be... Uh, Probably a no-go for me to actually attend it, but um, I encourage you that if you live in any one of these 47 cities that they are going to have the march, uh, including the biggest one of all, I understand, is going to be in Washington, D.C. Um, they're going to have speakers there, and it's going to be, a um, you know, obviously it's going to be March for Medicare for All. Uh, they're going to talk about Medicare for All. So it's a, it's a good topic to talk about. It's a good topic to consider. Um, it's been in the news for a very long time. And, um, if you feel so inclined to attend, you may do so. The information you can find is at M4M4ALL, M4M4ALL. That's March for Medicare for All. It's a weird thing to do. M4M4ALL.org. And that'll get you all the information you need to know to get yourself lined up with one of these marches. And that's all I have to say about that. All right. Please attend if you're able. Thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party perspective. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you'd like to get involved in the Alliance Party, please check out our website at www.theallianceparty.com. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you'd like to contact us at the Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at the alliance party.com. 
And also check out our Twitter page at the Alliance, excuse me, at Alliance on Air. All contents for this podcast is copyright of the Alliance Party. However, the views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Greg from Philly, your host for this evening's edition of the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of Dan, myself, and everyone here at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.